Cool. How is everyone? Doing well? Good stuff. I was watching uh, Britain's Got Talent last week. I don't care how I don't care how sad you think I'm. I love that program. I think it's great. And um, what happened? If, okay, if you know how Britain's Got Talent works, basically um, people there is no talent for a lot of people. Uh, they audition in a big theatre in front of a panel of three judges. And uh, when I was watching it, the auditions were taking place in Manchester. And what happened there is there was a celebrity judge that came along. So there was an, an additional judge in the, in the panel of judges. And I think it was Kelly Brooks. And um, you know what really surprised me was as, as Kelly Brooks' car um, drove, up to, drove up to the theatre and, and she got out, the crowd of people outside just went absolutely mental. I mean, you had all these teenagers just yelling at the top of their voices, going, we love you, Kelly! I mean, they just went absolutely berserk. They just went crazy. And what is that? That's worship. These people were worshipping Kelly Brooks. They were saying, we think that you are great enough. We think that you're big enough in our minds for us to look like absolute idiots and scream at the top of our voice. We think that you are worthy enough in our views for us to offer, the, offer our bodies, to offer our speech and to shout, looking like absolute nuts, at you. They were worshipping. I was watching a worship service right in front of my eyes. A very different kind of the one we usually think of. And do you know what really scared me about that? Is that the sincerity and the passion that came out of those people is far greater than I see in a lot of churches and in my life when I worship God. The passion that those people put into screaming after their idol or their star was far greater than a lot of the time I put into my worship of God. And that scares me. Our country is worshipping. Our nation is worshipping. Like Steph said last week, if you were there last week, everyone is a worshipper by nature. Everyone worships something. It might be themselves, it might be money, it might be sex, it might be idols, it might be superstars, or whatever you want. People worship stuff. We don't need to teach people how to worship. Everyone knows how to do that. They're very good at it. Just look around. We need to teach people who to worship. And I feel that there is a commission on the church to take worship back for the person who deserves worship. And that as a church, we should take worship back, not for a superstar, not for money, not for sex, not for celebrities, but for Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're in a six-week um, series at the moment of, uh, of sermons on, on the topic of worship. And we're in week two. Last week, Steph talked about life as worship. What does it mean to be a worshipper? What does it mean to worship? And this week, we're going to talk about speech as worship. Next week, we're going to talk about sex as worship. The week after, I can't remember, we're going to do life as worship, work as worship, um, money as worship, and food as worship. That's it. But today we're going to look at speech as worship. And how do we glorify God in the way we speak? How do we glorify our creator and our saviour in the way that we speak? But before we start that, I just want to give you a backdrop, um, pretty much a summary of what Steph said last week when it comes to worship. What we believe as a church, worship is. What the Bible says about worship. So that we're we're going with this backdrop. The whole series is out of this backdrop and aiming towards this. In, um, in Romans 12, you don't have to turn there if you, haven't, if, if you haven't got time, but in Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Some of your translations will have spiritual worship. The best translation is reasonable worship 
or rational service. It's this idea that Paul is saying to this church, he's saying, I've written for 11 chapters about the mercies of God, about how great he is, about how awesome he is, about how rubbish we are, but that God so loved us that he chose to send his one and only son to die, suffer, absorb God's wrath for us so that we can be reconciled into a relationship with him. He said, in view of that, in view of what God has done, The logical response is to offer everything that you have to this amazing saviour. The logical response is to pour your life into into complete devotion and everything that you do should be an act of worship to this amazing God. So that's what we're aiming at for this six-week sermon. We're not going to yell at you and say, you must worship in this way, you must do this, you must do that. It's coming out of a gratitude for what God has done for us. It's reasonable. It's just rational. It's completely logical. In view of what God has done for us, we should lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for him. So we're going to be looking at speech as worship this week. So how do we we offer our mouths as a living sacrifice to God? How do we offer the way that we speak, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we sing? Maybe if 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 you sing songs, the way that we speak, how do we offer that as a living sacrifice to God? And we're going to look at a, a story or a, a something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's going to come up on the screen in a minute. Could you just take it down for the moment? Cheers. Uh, yeah, there we go. But um, just before we read it, I'm just going to give you the context here. I'm just going to give you the, the, what, what happens before this particular part. If you watch Neighbours or something like that, often at the beginning of the episode, you'll have what happened last week. This is what's happened just before the story we get to here. So basically, Jesus has been preaching the good news. He's been preaching the kingdom of God. He's saying the, the rule of God is coming. The rule of God is coming. Get your hearts ready. God is coming back. God is going to do something amazing in your days. And he's preaching that. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's opening blind people's eyes. He's even raising the dead. And he's gathering crowds of thousands and thousands of people. And he's preaching the good news to them. He's pulling crowds of thousands and just proclaiming God's amazing news. And I don't know if you've, if you've read the Gospels a little bit, you'll notice this, that Jesus tends to walk straight into trouble. You ever notice that? Especially with this group of people called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a, religious, um, a group of religious leaders of the day, and every time Jesus meets with the Pharisees, there tends to be conflict. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my friends or my parents would tell me, look, if someone, if someone tries to do something to provoke you, just don't respond, just ignore them. I could just imagine Jesus' disciples saying, look, the Pharisees are here, just... Whatever they say, just don't rise up to it. And every time, you can just imagine the disciples going, oh no, he's doing it again. But every single time Jesus meets the Pharisees, for some reason, he tends to just lay into them. And he does that here. Basically, Jesus has just um, cast a demon out of a guy who was mute and deaf. He couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. And uh, so he cast the demon out and the guy's completely healed, completely, totally um, made well. And he can speak and he can hear again. And the crowd that's around Jesus suddenly starts thinking, Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the guy that the whole Old Testament's been talking about. Maybe this is the person that God has promised for years. Maybe it's him. Maybe this is the son of David. And the Pharisees who are alongside say, it's only by Satan that he casts out Satan. They say, the way he's casting out demons is by the power of the prince of demons himself. And Jesus, instead of ignoring them, goes straight at them and treats them like a bunch of idiots. He basically says, guys, put two and two together. If Satan's casting out Satan, he's doing a brilliant job of destroying his kingdom. So guys, just be logical. If I'm casting out Satan with Satan, he's being, Satan's being a bit stupid. And we know that Satan isn't stupid. And then he goes on to say, he said, look, your sons cast out demons too. Your sons do that. And if you're saying I cast them out by Satan, what about them? So he's having a little go at their family too. 
And then he goes on to say, look, if, if you're not for me, you're against me, he says loads of random things, and he even accuses them of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. This massive sin that has been bigged up so much in, in, in the church. This, you are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. You're speaking against the Holy Spirit. I mean, do you understand why the Pharisees aren't too happy with Jesus a lot of the time? Why they react so violently? Because Jesus just lays into them completely. Because they, obviously because they, they get stuff wrong. And we'll see some of the stuff that they get completely wrong as we go on. But um, basically, we're going we're gonna to read from verse 33 to verse 37. And that's where the story joins. So Jesus has just accused them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, of speaking against the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in verse 3, if we can have the slide up, brilliant. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus wasn't very tactful, was he, with the Pharisees? He wasn't very seeker-sensitive. He didn't, he didn't try and, and please them. He didn't try and be soft. He just went straight at them. I mean, listen to what he says in verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers. I don't think we can imagine how offensive this would have sounded to them. I don't think we understand it. But let's just, let's just dig into that a bit. If you were a Jew in the first century AD, you would have believed the same creation story that we believe in Genesis. That God created the world in, in six days and then rested on the seventh but you would have also believed the story that Satan deceived Adam and Eve, who are our, our first parents, by making them disobey God. And does anyone know what kind of animal Satan disguised himself as? A snake, a serpent. And here Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. He's basically saying, you sons of the devil. He's talking to these righteous people, the people these people that the Jews would have looked up to as their standard of righteousness. And he's saying, you guys are sons of the devil get to see why they get so offended with Jesus. But Jesus has a good reasons to call them like that. How can you speak good when you are evil? Now, what does he mean here? Because we've got to get this straight, because it can't be talking about swearing. It can't be talking about just bad language. Why not? Do you seriously think the Pharisees would have gone around swearing? Do you seriously think the Pharisees would have gone around cussing each other? Do you seriously think they'd have gone around speaking with filthy language? I don't think they were. These guys put their whole might and effort into following God's law, and practically speaking, they, they did a rather good job of it. They wouldn't have gone around swearing their heads off. So Jesus can't be talking about that here. I mean, do you want a good example of how I could completely slaughter a sermon on speech as worship? If I stand here and I say this, okay, guys, we're in a, a series on, on worship, and this week is speech as worship. And I've got three points. First one is this. Guys, don't swear. Okay? Don't swear. Why not? God doesn't like swearing. Makes him angry. So that's my number one point. Point number two, don't insult one another. Why? Because God doesn't like that. You don't want to displease God, do you? He'll get angry with you. And point number three, don't say rude jokes. Because God really doesn't like that. And if you do all these three things, then you're a good worshipper. Because you're, you're, you're doing what's good, you're speaking in a good way, you'll be a good worshipper. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They put rule after rule. They said, speak in this way, don't speak in that way, speak like that. Then we'll attain this standard of righteousness, which means we'll be right with God. And what does Jesus call them? Sons of the devil. 
So Jesus can't be talking about just the, the quality of our language here. So what is he talking about? Now, the reason I gave you the context is that we're going to find out what he's talking about by looking at the, the part that comes up before. So what has Jesus just accused the Pharisees of doing? Anyone remember? Good, someone was listening. He's just blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, speaking out against the Holy Spirit. In other words, what's just happened is the Pharisees have said, look, you're casting out Satan by Satan. And Jesus says, look, you're not acknowledging the fact that I'm anointed by the Spirit of God. You're not acknowledging the fact that the Spirit that is working in me is the Holy Spirit. And you're therefore denying that I am God's anointed one. You're saying you're not really empowered by God, you're empowered by someone else. You are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which shows us that worship is so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. Speech as worship is so much more than just saying, don't swear, don't do this. It's a way of speaking that acknowledges Jesus Christ as the saviour of the world. It's a way of speaking that acknowledges Jesus Christ as the sent one of God, the one who, who came to take away our sins. It's a speech that glorifies Jesus It's a way of speaking rather than just necessarily words. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's a whole way of speaking. Does your speech glorify Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you know a bit about the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus is a lot more interested in being than doing. He's he's a lot more impressed when people are a certain thing than when they do certain things. I mean, the Pharisees were great at doing. They did a good job of that. But Jesus, a few chapters later, in chapter 27, he says this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You know how to obey the law properly. You look good. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. The issue here isn't primarily the way we speak, though it is affected by the way we are. But the issue is who we are on the inside. If you are not good, you will not speak in a way that glorifies God. If you are evil, you will speak in an evil way. That's the logic here. And as a church, we know very well that people aren't good. People are evil inside because of the fall, because of the fact that we are sinners by nature. We are, our hearts are evil. So out of the abundance of the heart, if, speech, if good speech comes out of the abundance of the heart, then we speak in a way that's evil naturally. And Jesus gives us two examples for this. And the first one is in verse 33. He, he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So example number one is that a tree is known by the fruit it bears. You ever notice that? You ever notice that an apple tree doesn't tear, tend to grow lemons? If it grows lemons, it's a lemon tree. And you can just imagine the conversation with a a lemon tree, saying, look, I'm, I'm, really an, I'm really an apple tree, really. Don't judge me on what I bear. I'm an apple tree. And you're like, no, you're growing lemons. You're a lemon tree. You're not an apple tree. It's the same with us. If you come up to me and say, look, I'm a good person, essentially, but boy, do I do some bad things. Man. I mean, that guy I spoke to earlier on, really laid into him, really hurt him, but I'm good, essentially. It doesn't add up. Lemon trees do not bear apples. Apples, Apple trees don't bear lemons. It just doesn't work. Jesus is telling us, look, if your speech is good, you are good. And if if your speech is evil, you are evil. That's how it works. You recognize the tree by its fruit. And so if if a lemon tree wants to become an apple tree, it can't just put wishful thinking into it. It can't just say, don't judge me by my external appearances. It has to turn into a lemon tree. It It has to have its very genetic structure changed. And so do we. 
If we, as, as people who inherently are evil, who inherently are not good, are not righteous, say that we are good, we're kidding ourselves. We need to be changed on the inside. And you know what? Jesus promises change on the inside. Jesus promises to take out our heart of stone, which is opposed to God, and replace it with a heart of flesh that beats with the very heartbeat of God and that wants to glorify him. So that's Jesus' first example. He says, you recognize the tree by its fruit. It's about who you are primarily. And as a result, it's about what you do. And the next one is in verse 35, which I've called, um, what's in your treasure chest? Verse 35 says this, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So you see the example here? There's two guys with two treasure chests. One of them is good, and he's got loads of good stuff in his treasure chest, and he can give out good stuff. One of them has got loads of rubbish stuff in there, and he can only give out rubbish stuff. You bring out of your treasure chest what you've got in there. You take out of your bag what you've got in your bag. So to illustrate this, Foxy is now going around at the moment. He's, he's got a bag full of treasure, and... Um, he really wants to give this out to people. He wants to share his treasure, so he's giving it out. Really kind of him. And uh, he's just picking on a few really lucky people to give the treasure out. But what you'll notice is that as you get the treasure, it seems to be rocks. I mean, the issue isn't his heart. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's very happy in giving out his treasure there. Which is just for unsaved maps. But, but the problem is, he's giving out pebbles. And so I can, I can say, look, Foxy, give something good out, please. We don't want pebbles. What's the problem? He's only got pebbles in his bag. He can't give anything else out apart from pebbles. So what does he need? He needs this. Foxy, come here. He needs someone to put... Well, put, put it in your treasure chest. He needs someone to put good treasure in his treasure chest. And now he can say, okay, I've got good treasure in my chest. I'm going to give this out because I'm a nice guy. So we can go and bless the front row there and give them some quality streets. So just get, give it out to a few people. So do you understand the illustration there? Jesus is saying, right, you can go and sit down now. You guys can have one at the end if you want. Thanks, Foxy. So do you guys get the illustration there? The problem originally wasn't that Foxy didn't want to give out good, it's that he had no good inside his bag. Inside his Sainsbury's bag, he had no good. What he needed was for someone to put something good in there so that he could give it out. Okay? So that's Jesus' second example. He says, okay, what is in your heart will affect the way that you speak. So first of all, you need to be transformed. If you aren't good, you will not speak good in the first place. And then secondly, you need to fill your heart with stuff that is good in order to speak in a way that is good. Jesus' two illustrations point to this, is that we need transformation. We need change. We need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. We need to be changed by Jesus. If you are new here and there's a lot of new people, you will hear about Jesus every single week if you come here. Because we love Jesus. We will not preach about anything unless Jesus is right at the centre. We will not talk about ethics unless Jesus is the hero. We will not talk about morality unless Jesus is the hero. We won't talk about sex unless Jesus is glorified. We won't talk about relationships unless Jesus is glorified. We won't talk about anything, marriage, family, work, life. We won't talk about anything unless Jesus is at the centre because Jesus is the only one who can bring transformation to our lives. He's the only one who is worth worshipping. He's the only one worth talking about. We preach Christ at this church. And you're going to hear a lot about him because he's the only one who can change you on the inside. He's the only one who can do what no other man, no other urge, no other idol can satisfy. 
which is bring you new life. We're going to go and look at verses 36 and 37 now. Do you ever get those verses you just wish weren't in the Bible? You just read them and you're like, I really wish that wasn't there. <laughs> Verse 36 is one of those. Could we, actually, could we go back to the, um, the passage so I didn't do a separate slide for it? <coughs> Verse 36 says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, why does Jesus choose to put that here? Because it looks illogical. Don't you think it just... It just Jesus has been talking about transformation. He's been talking about, it's about who you are. It's about not what you do, it's about who you are, and that changes what you do. And then he says, oh, you're, you're going to be held to account for what you do. Doesn't it just sound weird to put it in there? Why does he do that? Isn't that exactly the same as the example I gave earlier on of how I could slaughter a sermon on that? Jesus just says, you're going to be held to account for what you do. What you do really matters. Isn't that exactly the same as what I did earlier on? And you see, the Bible in other places, tends to speak like that too. If we can have the passage from Ephesians 5 come up. Here we go, it says this, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then we can have the next one up from Colossians 3. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So the Bible's full of practical instructions saying, do this, don't do that. But earlier on I was saying that the Pharisees did that. And Jesus called them, calls them a brood of vipers. How does it work? How does that work? What's the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. The example I gave earlier on of saying, look, don't swear, don't do this, don't do that. And if you do that, you're a good worshipper. Is Christless. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit transforming you. There's no mention of the cross by which you can be changed. There's no mention of God sanctifying you, of God taking you on a journey, of becoming more and more like Jesus. There's no mention of Christ in it. It's absolutely Christless. Whereas if you look at every single example that we looked at, you read around the verse, it is soaked in passages like um, in Ephesians 5, 8. It says later on, it says, look, you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light. And even, even the passage we're reading at the moment, Jesus has talked about it's who you are that counts. So it's soaked in things about transformation. It's soaked in stuff like you are now in Philippians, um, Philippians 2. Paul writes, he says, look, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And shine like lights in the world. Shine in the midst of a crooked generation amongst whom you shine. You see, we've been changed as Christians. We've been transformed as Christians. And the only reason that, that these examples are given, the only reason that these commands are given is because we have been changed. It's basically saying, live up to who you are. It's saying you've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about a list of trying to get right with God. It's about living up to who you actually are now. That you've been changed. You've been transformed. And as a result, let there be no filthy talk come out of your mouth. So let's try it this way. Let's try my example and change it slightly. If I was to stand here and say this, I would be absolutely fine with saying this. By the power of the cross of Christ, you have died to sin. You have been transformed. You have a new heart of flesh instead of the old heart of stone. Your mind is being renewed daily. You are being transformed into the image of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. Now, in light of that, do not swear. Do not insult one another. Do not put each other down. Do not back chat. Do not lie to one another. Do not gossip, because it's not who you are. 
It's not who you are anymore. It's not an issue of saying, look, guys, don't do this because God doesn't like it. It's you are holy, be holy. You are good, be good. You, pe- the children of God do not speak in obscene ways. The children of God do not talk in obscene ways. The children of God don't go around swearing their heads off. Live like you are. Live up to who you are. That's what it's saying here. I mean, one of the most frustrating things is when you see a, a Christian who's been going for a few years, red hot for God, and then suddenly starts just going back to living the old way. And you just, you just want to take them, shake them and say, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? You're made in the image of God. You are being renewed daily. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Why would you want to go back to being like you were? Why would you want to go back to your own sinful life? It's about who we are, guys, not about what we need to do. We are saints. Let's act like it. Verse 36 is a warning for us. In light of who we are, let's act in a way that is consistent with it. And if we don't, the warning is this. We will give account for every careless word that we say. We will give account for every single careless... I I believe this is talking to Christians. I don't believe this is just for non-Christians. We will have to give an account before God for every careless word that we utter. That just scares me. I I mean, that scares me. And I I felt God say to me today, look, I I, I was thinking about it and I said, look, look, this really scares me, but I I don't necessarily know if I fully understand how terrifying it is to stand before God and have to give an account. This terrifies me. But we will have to stand before God for every careless word and explain why we did it wrong, why we said a certain thing. And some of you might think, well, that just sounds legalistic. It just sounds bad. No, it's God being a good father. Let's take this example. If I was to swear my head off and insult someone in front of my father, would my dad just ignore it? No. Would he stop loving me and be my father? No, of course not. But would he hold me to account for it? Yes, he would. If we are children of God and we step out of line with who we are, God will demand an account for it. God will say, why did you step out of line with who you now are in Christ? Why did you speak in that way? It's not consistent with who you are. God's children don't do that. Why did you do that? And you know what? Every single time, my account will be this. I did not fill my treasure chest with good stuff. I didn't let Christ occupy the front of my mind. I didn't let Christ's transforming power take its full effect in me at that time. I have no excuse. And every time I just throw myself on the mercy of God and say, your son died to forgive me. I failed so many times and I have no excuse, but your son died to forgive my sins. Guys, we will, we will have to give an account to God. It's sobering. But it's about living up to who we are. Now let's go to verse 37. I have a big problem with verse 37. Just, let's just read it and let's see if you see the problem. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Does anyone see the problem there? Anyone, anyone just read the verse and think, what? Okay, as a church, what do we believe we're justified by? Jesus. By faith. By grace. A free gift of God. And Jesus here says, you will be justified by your words. How on earth does that make sense? How on earth, doesn't that just contradict the whole of the rest of the Bible? Now here's what I think it means. And it's sobering. Is that your words, is not, it's not the means of what justifies you, but it is counted as evidence of a truly transformed life. 
So the Christian will stand before God on the day of judgment, will stand before Christ who is on, on the throne and judging the nations. And it's, the book of Revelation says that books will be opened and that all our deeds will be, um, will be um, said and that we'll be judged according to what we did. And for the Christian, God will look at his deeds and he will say, there has been a clear progression in holiness. There is fruit that is being born. Sure, he's made mistakes. Sure, he's stumbled so many times, but there's a, a clear progression. There is God-centeredness in the way he speaks. There is, a, there is a, an increase of Christ-exalting words. He is evidence of the transformation of my son in his life. He is evidence that the Holy Spirit has truly been inside him. He is evidence that he is truly born again. Your words are not the means by which you're justified. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. There's no other way to be justified but Jesus. But we are transformed as a result, and your words will be counted as evidence for or against that. And so the non-Christian will step up, and God will say, there is no fruit, no transformation. He might have said a few nice things in his life. He might might have been a very nice person, but there is no Christ-centeredness in the way that person spoke. He's not saved. He's not born again. And this invites us into the painful biblical idea of self-inspection, of saying, is the way I speak, is the way I live in line with who I should be? Just inspecting yourself. Am I in the faith? Am I truly a believer? And the Bible invites us to do that, that if you are truly saved, you will be transformed. I want to say that to you. If you're truly saved, you will be transformed. It's brilliant news. It's amazing. But the Bible also invites us to look at ourselves and say, am I bearing the fruit that is required? Am I bearing the fruit that points to the fact that the Spirit is living within me and transforming me. It's sobering, but it's good news that we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's conclude. What about us? So how do we speak in a way that glorifies Christ? How do we, how do we offer worship to God through the way we speak? Well, first of all, you must be born again. You need to be born again. A lemon tree cannot produce apples. An apple tree cannot produce lemons. If you have not been born again, if you have not had your mind renewed, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you cannot worship God through the way you speak. You need to be born again. And if that's you today and you've been listening to what I've been talking about and you just, that's just resounding within you, you think, yes, I need to get born again. I need to get right with God. I need to commit my whole life to him. But I'm going to offer you a chance to respond later as we take the bread and the wine. But I just say this, please, you must get born again. You must get born again. Because there is no other way to be justified before God. And number two, this is for people who are born again. Fill your heart with good things. Jesus tells us out the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you fill your mind with? Is your mind Christ-centered? Is it filled with the fact that Christ came, died, resurrected, ascended on high and is ruling over everything? Is your mind full of the Bible or is your mind full of stuff? Guys, how well do you know this book? How much does this book influence your life? How much do you meditate on it? How much time do you spend in the word of God? Getting to know it, front to back, back to front, just knowing God's word. I think one of the reasons this is such a big book is because we have a mind that can contain so much information. And if you get this book into your mind, if you get lots of this book into your mind, other stuff won't have any room in there. And so automatically out of the overflow of your heart, the fact that there is God's word in your heart dwelling there, you will speak good. And number three, I would encourage you, if you are a Christian here, to live like who you are. To live in a way that is consistent with who you are. And some of you here might might just have a, a lifestyle of just insulting others, putting others down. Try just back backbiting. 
And I say, by the grace of God, who has transformed your life, stop it. By the grace of God, you can stop it. And so you might think, it's just the way I am. I'm just like that. I'm doomed like that forever. No, you're not. You're not. You are not doomed to be someone who backbites people. You're not doomed to be someone who just swears their head off all the time. You can stop it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are now able to live in a way which is consistent with being a Christian. So that's it. You need to get born again. When you are born again, you fill your mind with the Word of God. You fill your mind with God's amazing, amazing work that he's done in your life. You fill your mind with the, the, just the splendor of God's glory, the splendor of God's majesty. And you live in a way that is consistent by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling, transforming power of Christ. You live in a way that is consistent with who you are. We're now going to respond by, uh, by singing more praise to God. We're, going to, we're, going to, we're just going to lift the roof with praise. We are going to thank God for what he has done for us, for the fact that he sent his son to die, to forgive us our sins, to forgive us all our trespasses. We're going to worship God now. We're going to put this to practice. These songs that we're going to sing are all godly, Christ-focused words. So we're going to put this into application, speaking words that glorify Christ. But whilst we're, whilst we're doing that, for the first two songs, we're going to take the bread and the wine. Um, now, why do we do this? We do this because Jesus told us to do it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When you take the bread, when you eat the bread, he says, remember, this is my body. This represents my body that was broken for, for you. And he says, when you take the wine, remember, this is the wine of the covenant that was poured out for many. My blood that was, sorry, the blood of the covenant that was poured out for many, my blood that was shed for your, for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a Christian, I'd, I'd invite you to come and take it. But if you, if you need to get right with God, please do that before. And if you need, especially because this sermon's talking about words, if, you, if you're aware that you have, you have sinned against someone here in the way you spoke, I, I'd, just, I'd invite you to go and just ask forgiveness from that person first, to go and confess to them, say, look, I'm sorry about the way I did that later, earlier on. I'm sorry about the way I spoke to you. The Bible tells us that you can take the, you can take the bread and the wine in a way that is unworthy. If you're, if you've got, if you're harboring sin in your heart, and we don't want that. So get right with God before. If you're not a Christian, don't take it. There's no magical powers in it. There's no, there's no sense in which it just transforms you. It's just, it, it's sim, it's just symbolic. But if, if whilst I've been speaking, you've suddenly thought, actually... What he's been saying has been resounding in me. I need to, cha- I need to change. I need to be, go from being a, a lemon tree to an apple tree. I need to be transformed right on the inside. And I'd, I'd invite you to come and take the bread and the wine as a response. Say, Lord, I'm giving my life completely over to you. You're taking the reins. You're taking the controls. Romans 10 says this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other, in other words, if you put Christ above everything, say, you are Lord over my life. Nothing else comes over you. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the glorious truth is that if you do that, you will be saved. If you put Christ above everything, he will transform your life, renew you. And if that's you today, I'd love you to come and take the bread and the wine as a a response of faith. And I'd love to pray for you at the end, or if you want to go and find the friend that brought you, then we'd love to pray for you and just start you off on this amazing journey of being transformed by Christ. But um, if the band can come back up, I'm just going to pray, and we're going to sing some songs of praise to God. Lord Jesus, we just want to say it is all about you. Everything is about you, Lord Jesus. We don't do anything unless it's for you, Lord. We don't want to do anything unless you're at the centre, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you transform lives. You change us. 
You completely, you take us from the depths of despair, being dead in sin, and you make us alive with you, Lord Jesus. You raise us with Christ. You seat us in heavenly places, Lord Jesus. You are amazing. And Lord, we want to we want to just say we want to worship you in the way we speak. We want to speak in a way that glorifies you, Lord. So I pray, would you come by your Holy Spirit as we, as, we, as we praise you now with these songs? And would you work in our hearts, Lord? Would you work in people's hearts? I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who don't know you, so that you would come to bring them to know you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who do know you, Lord Jesus, to transform them. And as a result, out of the abundance of their heart, they will speak in a way that glorifies you, Lord Jesus. I pray, help us to, help us to praise you in a way that is worthy. Help us to worship you, Lord Jesus. We want to be worshippers of you. Would you help us? Lord Jesus, we want to give you all the glory tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen.